Hi there. Thanks for listening to the Kind Mind Podcast. My name's Michael Todd Fink, but you can just call me Todd. That helps differentiate me from my dad, Michael, which it's done my whole life. And I apologize for the long delay between episodes here. Main reason for that is travel, and I am trying to prepare for my first TED Talk, which will be November 9th at TEDx Naperville. I believe there are still tickets if you'd like to attend, and I'd really appreciate your support if you're in the area and that's possible. You can visit TEDxNaperville.com, or you can find a link on my website in the events section. There are some other events coming up as well. On October 22nd, we're having another Kind Mind gathering, and this will be at the Hyatt Regency in Lyle, Illinois. It's right off 88 near Route 53 for those in the western suburbs. It's a pretty convenient location. It starts at 7 o'clock. Suggested donation is $20. The beauty here is that this space should allow us to have more opportunity to connect before and after the talk. There's a nice lounge that are serving food and drinks before and after. So I hope you'll come and connect, bring friends or make new ones. And then on Tuesday, November 12th, Mind Curate begins its partnership with Ace Hotel Chicago to bring a series of mindful talks with me and my collaborator and friend, Vanessa Palmer. I will be speaking about the science of gratitude. So if you're in the city or you know people in the city of Chicago that would like to attend, I think that will be a really wonderful meeting. Uh, Tickets are only $10 through Eventbrite. You will be able to find that on my website as well or at Mind Curate on Facebook. And for all other events, please refer to my website, michaeltodfink.com slash events. And now this episode is about addiction. And listening back, it kind of seems like I'm just rambling in a lot of different directions. And in the later part of the talk, it's actually a question and answer session that I decided to keep in uh, because I think there's a lot of good questions and, and interesting material there, but it might sound a bit tangential and the whole thing sounds tangential to me. But um, but if you feel like anything I'm saying is off base or wrong, I'm not wedded to anything that I'm talking about or any opinion. I get into things like medical marijuana and legalization of marijuana. And I don't really have strong opinions, but I do have some perspectives. But if you hear anything that sounds incomplete, please feel free to share your thoughts with me. Addiction is a challenging topic. I often get asked, what else can be an addiction? Is addiction only with drugs? Can food and sex and gaming and internet and so on be addictions as well? And I I think yes, because it's important to keep in mind that addiction changes the brain. It disrupts the reward circuitry and decision-making faculties. And when people experience that through drug use, it's not that the drug itself contains the neurochemicals. The chemical in the drug affects the balance of the neurochemicals that are already there. So, so many experiences change the brain, alter the brain. Seeing a sad movie and crying is changing serotonin levels. And 
when these behaviors become habitual, they can also fall into this condition, I think, of addiction. This reminded me of yoga and the fifth limb of Ashtanga yoga, Pratyahara, which means withdrawal of the senses. I didn't make this connection before, but Ahara means food. And since that limb of yoga refers to the five senses, it really means that food is not just limited to what we can eat. Food is anything that we take into ourselves. And anything that we take in through the senses can begin to overwhelm us or overpower us, or we can get strongly attached. There can be craving and obsession and overuse. So if you'd like to learn more about the art of turning the senses inward, learn more about meditation, learn more about pratyahara and concentration and pranayama, which is breath control exercises. In my work with adolescents from time to time, struggling with chemical dependency, I find that there's a strong link between adverse childhood experiences and drug use. And so I try to let them know that your wish to transcend your suffering, your pain, your environment is normal and is understandable. And then I try to educate about how drug use isn't sustainable, how it's unhealthy. And then I usually introduce mindfulness as a way to ground ourselves and as a way to alter our awareness in a healthy, sustainable, positive way. And I think that's why so many people actually use drugs in the beginning or start to use regularly because they do help a person's mind come more into the present moment. When, when somebody's bored, they're just bored. But when they're high, everything that previously made them bored is now suddenly much more interesting. Any show, any painting, any picture, nature, and so on. But it's not that we couldn't achieve that without some kind of artificial support. It's just not normally practiced. I mean, now mindfulness is becoming more popular and people are learning this art. The word mindfulness isn't a really good translation from its Buddhist and yogic counterparts because mindful makes me think that you got a head full of thoughts. And the opposite of mindfulness would be mindlessness. Mindlessness means underthinking, careless, impulsive, distracted. And those are states of mind that make relapse and use risky for people in recovery. Now, the opposite of underthinking wouldn't be mindfulness. The opposite of underthinking would be overthinking, obsession, fixation, rumination, again, associated with relapse and risky behavior for people in recovery. So it would be better to think of mindfulness as in the middle of those two, not underthinking, not overthinking, aware, conscious, responsive as opposed to reactive. But it takes practice and learning different mindfulness techniques can help people create a space between being triggered and choosing their response. It can help people connect with the present moment to feel temporarily liberated from worry about the future or rumination about the past. 
It can help people to build focus so their attention doesn't get drawn away to different temptations. Mindfulness, I think, is becoming a good tool in treatment. I call this episode adding context to addiction because it matters so much. During the Vietnam War, I think something like 70% of the military overseas were using heroin. In colleges, I think as many as 85% of students binge drink alcohol. So context matters, and then I go into other ways culture syncs up with certain behaviors. I talk about the primacy effect with the trajectory of addiction for different substances. I remember a friend coming to speak to a group of clients talking about his journey to recovery from alcohol, and he would say that what made it so hard was that he had 99 positive experiences out of 100. And so for the most part, he had just a strong positive association with drinking. But he said that one time out of 100 was not only bad, it was really bad. It was awful, horrible, horrific. And so it eventually became like Russian roulette, and then eventually it wasn't just one out of 100. But I think it's important in recovery to acknowledge with people that, yeah, probably some of the best experiences of your life have been while using or while high. So something like alcohol becoming like Russian roulette from, for people who have been passing through stages of addiction from experimentation to dependence, you, you might wonder, why do people continue to use after they have a car accident or lose their license or lose their job or lose their family? It's sort of like a, an abusive relationship where everyone else can see that it's dysfunctional, but the person within the relationship has a hard time leaving. Sometimes it has to do with the beginning, the beginning being very positive. And in between the episodes of dysfunction, there can be something genuinely kind or loving, and it really distorts the way people perceive the situation. So I also use that analogy sometimes when people that I work with are getting sober, and they will feel confident at some point in their recovery to be around drugs or alcohol and not use. And they sometimes tell me that this is a sign of my progress. And I try to redirect that kindly by saying, this isn't a matter of willpower. This is about building a new life where it's harder to use. And if you're getting sober, and it's only been a matter of days or weeks, you could kind of think of it like a divorce. And it would sound really strange for the divorcee to be telling their attorney, so I think you know, I can be around my ex now, you know, even though it's only been two weeks, and not feel anything or not want to cross boundaries. And they'd probably say, I think space, as much space as possible. And then, yes, at some point you will probably cross paths or have to interact at times, but you can do it without all the history coming up. And I think that's important for people in recovery too. But people struggling with addiction really feel like there's no life for me in this transition because everybody uses and drinking and or smoking is just such 
a part of American culture. I think it becomes a such a dominant part of their culture, and I think people would be surprised to know that I think something like 34% of adults in America don't use any substance ever, not even like occasionally or for holidays or weddings or whatever. And then you have maybe another third that uses very moderately, and then this final 10% of people that use alcohol, for instance, they consume about 70% of the alcohol produced in the country. So when companies are saying, remember to drink responsibly, that's necessary for PR. But if if everyone actually drank responsibly, they would lose about 70% of their business. So business model is addiction. Also, advertising for drugs and alcohol always goes towards youth. And part of that is because 90% of addiction begins in adolescence. So before we jump into this episode, I just want to remind you to keep in touch on social media, Instagram or Facebook at Michael Todd Fink. Feel free to email me anytime. If there are events or engagements that you would like me to speak at, feel free to reach out. And again, I apologize for the long delay. This would be a good time to remind you that there is a way to support this podcast and the work that I'm doing in the community. Just go to michaeltodfink.com slash support, and there is a way to contribute financially. And that certainly would help me be able to afford to take more time to organize these episodes and edit and master them and publish them. But I really appreciate your support. This show is growing, thanks to you all. Last month, there was over 20,000 subscribers. And uh, new ideas are coming to me for expanding the work here. And I'll let you know about that soon as well. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I look forward to your feedback. And I hope to see you soon at one of the upcoming events. I wanted to start by sharing this story from several years ago. I was working with a a young patient with addiction, opiate addiction, and he was narrating his story to me. He was maybe late teens, early 20s, but he had recently come to us from a stay in the critical care in the hospital. During a previous hospitalization, he was introduced to a woman who was being treated for depression. And as she heard his story about his misadventures with heroin, the thought came to her so strongly that she had never felt happy a single day in her life. Her depression had just dominated her entire existence. And the wish was so strong in her to just know what that could feel like to have an elevated mood for once in her life. Nothing seemed to be working. Treatment didn't seem to be working. And so when they were both out of treatment, she reached out to this young man and asked for his help in using. And he's like, no, I can't do that. He's like, I'm finally getting sober and I won't have any hope of getting better if I do this for you. And she said, you don't have to use, 
I'm going to do this either way. And so if you don't help me, it's certainly going to be a lot more dangerous or complicated for me. So finally, he caves in. And as he's going to meet her, she's saying, I'll pay for it. I'll drive. Just help me figure out how to do this. I want to feel this. And as he's going to meet her, he just feels so hopeless about himself and the situation. And he decides, you know what, I'm going to use two. But he, he's going to kill himself that, that day. He's going to intentionally overdose. So they make their way to the connection to get the drug. And then he shows her how to use it and sets her up with what in his mind is the safest dose. And then he proceeds to overdose. Well, he falls into a coma, wakes up three days later in the hospital, and the doctors are telling him how much of a miracle it is that he's even alive. And he had like less than 1% chance of being able to regain his memory and to have full functioning of his brain. But all that came back. And as he started to put this puzzle back together, then he remembered where he was and who he was with. And he said, where's that woman I was with? Is she okay? And the doctors inform him that she died from that one use. And then he came to me and we started to work together. But I, I feel like that story just exemplifies how bizarre and complex and tragic the opioid crisis is in America. 70,000 Americans die now each year from opiate overdose, which is like twice as many as car accident deaths. This term addiction is really complicated because we use it in conventional speech in a lot of different ways. We say our country is addicted to oil and fossil fuels. We say people are addicted to video games and addicted to TV and addicted to food. And it gets pretty confusing. And as a condition, it is very multidimensional. I'm just going to touch on a few of them to add some context to addiction. In 1980, our country had about the same rate of incarceration as all the other developed nations of the world. From then till now, America has incarcerated more people than any other country, than so many other countries combined. Our population represents 4% of the world, but we have 20% of the incarcerated people of the world. And much of that is due to the 1980 launch of the war on drugs which has disproportionately affected minorities. In the 18th century, there was 600,000 Africans kidnapped and brought to America in the slave trade. Today, there are over 2 million blacks in the prison system, whether incarcerated or in, on probation or jail and so on. To think that there are more black people under correctional supervision than 18th century slave trade. There's also a lot of other research that shows that whites and blacks, is in, in terms of just the last time they used an illicit drug, it's pretty similar. But black people are incarcerated like six times more than, than white people, or arrested six times more than white people. So there's this cultural problem associated with it. When we're thinking about what are the models for addiction, and is it a disease, I think that model works. But why do people say it's not a disease? Because there's a lifestyle component to it. They say, well, people are choosing to do this. They've done this to themselves and they didn't have to do it. And I push back on that and saying, 
by saying that many diseases have a lifestyle component, but they don't have the same kind of stigma associated with it. I mean, there's a lifestyle component to diabetes, right? How we choose to eat and our nutritional content can affect the development of that disease. And yet, even though there's a lifestyle component, we still consider it a disease. Some cancers may have lifestyle component. Consuming processed meats like bacon daily increase your risk of colon cancer by 67%. And colon cancer is already the most common cancer. But you wouldn't find a doctor saying, this isn't real because you did this to yourself. <laughs> or, or calling it a bacon abuse disorder. <laughs> Or telling the patient, three strikes and you're out, we can't treat you anymore. I mean, in a lot of psychiatric care, there, there are contracts, behavioral contracts. I always had a hard time accepting behavior contracts because that is actually what the disease is. The disease, at least the brain part of this, is, includes disruption to decision-making. And it is a disease of willpower. So you're almost setting patients up for shame and failure by giving them behavioral contracts. And so I think it does fit into a disease model. Then what would be the stages? Well, stage one, at least on a psychosocial level, stage one could be like experimental use. Most people experiment with drugs and alcohol at some point, and it never becomes much of a problem from there for, for many people. But if you think about what happens in stage one, there are many positives. Usually people are having fun, they're with friends, they don't have to pay for it, they don't get in trouble. Now I had a friend in college when we were 18, we are at a party, a bunch of underage drinking going on, the police in DC raided the party, started handcuffing kids, my buddy got arrested and thrown in the back of a squad car, and this was one of the first times, I mean, at least in college, that we were partying. But he got out of the squad car when the cops were getting other kids, ran off. Some other people helped him get the cuffs off. They tossed him in a sewer. And when the cops came back and saw he was gone, they went after him. They caught up with him. And all they really wanted to know is, where are the handcuffs? <laughs> because it's probably a lot of paperwork to, <laughs> to explain why there's no cuffs. They ended up charging him with a felony. He spent multiple weeks in prison before his family could get it sorted out. He was so traumatized by that incident that he never used again. Now, I say this because the primacy effect matters in the development of addiction. Just, just take a weekend of binge drinking and reorder the sequence of events that are likely to happen. Imagine somebody takes a drink and the first thing that happens is they start puking, they have flu-like symptoms, migraine, and that slowly dissipates over 24 hours until the next afternoon they feel kind of buzzed and good and loose for 15 minutes. <laughs> Who would drink? But because that comes later, the brain can so strongly associate with the initial experience. And that is also the case over time with these stages of addiction. The primacy effect matters in this experimental use if it's very positive, and people might make that strong association. The second uh, stage could be considered regular use of some kind. 
Now in the beginning, there's no pattern whatsoever. Kid gets offered something, but usually it starts out with a little bit of force and we call that force peer pressure. Then in regular use, you don't need as much peer pressure, but still the person using is not likely to be getting in trouble, not likely spending their own money and so on, still having positive experiences, still with friends, not going to do it while they're behind the wheel or at school until the third stage, which is considered risky use. After enough positive experiences in the, these first two stages, a young person may start to use in riskier situations at school or at work, behind the wheel. Now they're paying for it. Now they might be getting their first consequences. But if it continues to develop, it means those aren't enough to undo all the positive experiences that already have been felt. This also applies in relationships. Relationships can become highly dysfunctional, but the beginning of any relationship is usually very positive and loving and romantic, and otherwise there wouldn't be a relationship. So even after things become really chaotic, people will not leave them necessarily because they know that the beginning was beautiful and they're still living off of that initial investment, but it eventually starts to come down and go bankrupt. And if people don't recognize that, they can find themselves in a cycle of dysfunction or abuse. And then this fourth stage would be dependence, where a person is no longer using with others, they need to use alone, because they're tired of people saying, hey, you might want to watch your drinking there, or I think you've had enough. They're tired of that. And maybe finally they, they just break out of that and just use in their own space. And that's when it really grows into a serious problem because addiction is a disease of disconnection, social disconnection, a disease of loss of meaning, um, a disease that attacks human values. And you may have seen this famous TED talk by Johan Hari or read one of his books like Lost Connections that talks about this dimension a lot with addiction, the psychosocial cultural dimension. And he narrates this important study known as Rat Park. So up until the 70s, scientists had observed that rats in a cage, when given a choice between two sources of water, regular water and heroin infused water, they will always choose the heroin water until they die. This seemed to inform our understanding of addiction and dependence. You get exposed enough and then you get hooked. And that stuff has got such addictive properties, you just gotta stay away from it. Well, another scientist came along and said, but that's not actually how rats live. So how much can we really draw from this experiment? So he recreated this study with a cage that was 200 times the size of the previous ones and he called it Rat Park. He filled the cage with cheese and other rodents and everything that a rodent would want, a rat would like. It can have friends and it can have sex and it has plenty of food, but still two sources of water. Same two sources of water are there, heroin infused water and regular water. But in Rat Park, the rodents never drink the heroin water. Or if they do, they never develop a dependence on it. And so the takeaway from this is that 
We shouldn't just be asking people about what they're hooked onto. We need to understand what is their cage. And I think this speaks to why there are these cultural imbalances with respect to addiction. We know that there is a high rate of alcohol use among the Native American populations, but the reservations are in isolated regions. People don't have access to healthcare. There's extreme poverty. Researchers describe it as third world conditions. And so in, with all that loss of meaning, the mind is going to bond to something. That's what Johann Hari is saying, that there's always going to be bonding. And if we don't have bonding with purpose and our people and meaning in life, then we may bond with something else, a substance or a behavior or, or a pattern. Uh, so I, I think this is really fascinating. But of course, there's more layers to this. And I really want us to dive in in our conversation because this affects everybody for sure. 20 million Americans have a substance use disorder. Only 10% get treatment. So there's some big gap, some stigma. And, and part of that is just the context. Because like I said, in 1980, we launched the war on drugs. But in the 20th century, to smoke cigarettes was attractive. Now it's unattractive and there's stigma associated with that. Um, marijuana is still a schedule one drug federally, an illicit drug that has no medicinal properties according to its schedule. Meanwhile, states all over the country are moving to legalization. Okay? So what was once a crime is now socially accepted. And this is a really confusing topic all in, in itself, so I'll just touch on it briefly, but three things get conflated with, with cannabis. One is legalization, the legalization for recreational use. Second, decriminalization, not legalizing, but reducing sentencing and trying to guide people into rehabilitation. And thirdly is medicinal use, which is just mostly silly to me. Not that I don't think pot can help people cope with pain and other things, but just that the way we treat it in the system. Now, allopathic medicine, Western medicine, doesn't give people whole plants <laughs> for their condition. That would be like sending somebody to an elm tree farm with a three-year prescription for bark there because there's aspirin in that and that will really help your headaches. And now, you know, Illinois is moving to full legalization, which I, I would prefer over medicinal use because when they launched medical marijuana in Illinois, they called it the Compassionate Pilot Act or something like that. And who would you think would need this the most to cope with pain? Like what age segment of the population would you think needs the most help with treating pain? Yes, seniors. But over 50% of the recipients were between the ages of 18 and 34, nationally. And so I looked at the, one of the dispensaries in Naperville, back when the medical program launched, to see what the medicine was. And the first one is called Alien Rock Candy. <laughs> and others are called Bio-Jesus. Grape God Bud. And it's no wonder that seniors don't go there. 
it's not, it's not, it's not in the regular pharmacy. So I'm not saying that there's no benefits and that you can't derive or extract compounds from the plant and make medicine like we do with all other medicine. But I don't see anything compassionate about sending a senior citizen to a dispensary and ask them to order grape godbud for their glaucoma. <laughs> but I do see it throughout the country as just simply a step for the business people to help make it socially acceptable so they can push their full agenda. And the other thing to consider with full legalization is this. It's not just about freedom. Because I've never known any of my white friends to have a problem with being free enough to smoke pot. Almost all my friends have smoked pot and almost none of them have ever been in trouble for it. But when you legalize something, you're also green lighting corporations to advertise to children. And that's really what we need to be concerned about. Of, of course, it's complex. It's not black and white. Now, on one hand, you might say, but can't that reduce the influence of the black market and drug cartels in America? Maybe, but in some states where you tax what's legal and the black market can beat that price, it, it is actually in some states like Oregon, the black market increased initially. <laughs> Because now it's legal, so more people can use, and it's cheaper on the black market than it is in the regulated stores. All I'm saying is this is very complicated, and context matters. If you're, and if you're somebody who's wondered uh, about what addiction feels like, and that you just cannot relate whatsoever because uh, we, you know somebody and somebody in your family has hurt you so much, or hurt the family so much, that you just can't understand how somebody can keep making this wrong decision. Well, I, I say that everybody, whether you have an addiction or not, knows what it feels like. Because when, when people say you have a choice, I push back on that. Because if you think of something like eating, most people need to eat every day. Not only do they need to eat every day, they need to eat at least three square meals a day. I know so many people that cannot miss a single meal. Hanger is a real thing, <laughs> getting hangry. But a human being can survive for up to 60 days without food, yet people will not miss a single meal without losing their shit. <laughs> and so when you say you have a choice, do you have a choice? Though, If you're one of those, Hangry people, <laughs> do you feel like you have a choice? Every cell in the body is screaming, I need to eat now before I do anything. Think of coffee in the morning, the long lines at Starbucks. Imagine if tomorrow the map changed, the cultural map, and now for whatever reason, the government's decided coffee is illegal. <laughs> How many people are going to be ready to just like that? Oh, it's illegal and I won't use it. Oh, it's illegal, I won't drive with it. Now, of course, every drug affects differently and these stages of development is different. Smoking for a long time, it would just, the, the effects were concealed. Scientists hid it because they were paid off by corporations, hid what they knew since the 20s. And it's just a, it's a longer trajectory. And not every disease leads to death, but addiction can lead to death, but it's different with each type of addiction, just like every cancer is different. But ultimately, I'm advocating for compassion in all of this, and 
I'll just summarize by echoing the words of Ramdas. He talked about going into the woods and seeing the trees in the forest. And you, you see that they're all different. Some are taller, some are stronger, some are crooked. And you, your mind just kind of allows for all of it because there's just an inner understanding. Well, this tree didn't have enough light and this one grew on the side of the hill and this one's closer to water and so on. And you just look with an open, neutral mind and you just appreciate it all. But as soon as we come out of the woods and we're with people, it's like we give up all of that and we just go back to judging. This person's to that, to this, you know. So I think we need to move away from the language of addiction. Calling people addicts is not compassionate. People are people. They have different conditions and we need to try to be loving. We may need to set boundaries, but we can still see people as people. The word abuse probably has contributed so much to why the prison population has been dramatically increasing because that sounds criminal. Substance abuse. So the better language is substance use substance use disorders. And I thank you for listening to me and I hope that we can really jump in because like I said, I think this affects all of us. And if we can have a really open, deep conversation, I think we can help a lot of people just by this conversation today. So the question was, I'm going to repeat some of the questions just to make sure we, we have them for the recording. The question was, are there alternatives to the expensive treatment programming and hospitalization. Well, one of the, dim the dimensions of addiction is spiritual. And so programs like Alcoholics Anonymous 12-step programs have helped millions of people since its inception to stay sober. The concerns there, I think, would be like the language of being an addict. I tell the patients I work with, Go to that if, that if you feel inspired to. And when you're saying, I'm an alcoholic, just know that it means to you, I have this disease and I can't just not have it. And just by being sober doesn't mean I don't have any potential problem. And so you'll see people who are sober for 30 years in that program, having 30 years of success, but still going on a regular basis. And you may wonder why are they still going? And it's because they know they are one drink away from being in trouble. So they're still maybe as close to the, a problem as somebody with 30 days of sobriety. But in the program, people try to make amends with the people that they've hurt in their life. It's not, I don't think it's so much about feeling like you're this horrible person and that you're a sinner and that you're, you have all these moral flaws. It's about rebuilding wherever you can. It's about connection and establishing meaning in one's life again. Because like I said, the cage is all about where is the brokenness of purpose and connection with others. So if it can be achieved that way, beautiful. I think it works. I think the, uh, the other main thing is the singularity of purpose. You have a group of people together and they're non-judgmental and they all want the same thing. And when you surround yourself by people who all want the same thing, whatever it is, music, art, business, people tend to go, to go farther. Now patients sometimes push back at me saying, I don't like the spirituality of 12-step meetings. I don't, I have a you know, bad association with God or something like that. 
And I just say, well, if that's all you got right now to stay sober, I think you, you ought to just do it. Because if you flip this around when you were using, and I would joke with them like this, when you were in the throes of drug use, it's not like you, you would say, I was going to get high, but money was tight that week. <laughs> or I wanted to go to that party, but there's a lot of people there that voted for Trump, and so I couldn't get high that day. Or there's people with different spiritual beliefs. I'm an atheist and I can't go to that party because I think a lot of people there believe in God, so I couldn't get high. It doesn't work like that, right? <laughs> so taking a little bit of the creativity of using and apply it to sobriety. I mean, no paraphernalia, no problem. You just need an apple or something and you're good to go. So it, it requires people wanting this also, just like any other disease. If people don't accept they have a disease, then they may not be able to get help. But it's not just with addiction. It, when somebody is first diagnosed with thyroid disease or diabetes, it's not like, okay, well then I'll change all my eating habits today. No, it takes some time for them to really accept it. And at first it's like, I gotta be able to do this another way. And there's, there's resistance, that's normal because there's so much shame and stigma associated with addiction, it's just much harder. We need to work as a community to reduce the stigma. Thank you. Next question. Yeah, i just touch on it real quick and then we'll take the next question. But that's so true. I mean, spiritual quality is all about building and rebuilding, regardless of how things happen. But you're right, there needs to be consequences. It's just how we deliver those consequences. And in terms of crime, crime is very much a cultural concept. In the 20th century, to, to kill a man during peace times could be a crime. To not kill a man during war times could also be a crime. So this maps on differently decade to decade, generation to generation what morality is. And, uh, but anywhere we know that people ha have been hurt or wherever there is suffering, it behooves every spiritually minded person to try to make that situation better, to reduce the harm. Thank you. So the question again is about connection and also the elderly. Sometimes the elderly lose some purpose. In retirement, people aren't engaged with their careers anymore. 40% of women over the age of 75 not in nursing care live alone. So there actually is an increase in drug use among older populations. But connection. I think for like 12-step programs, the concept of a higher power is good because it's not necessarily God. And if people struggle with God, that higher power can, doesn't even have to be something divine. I mean, nature, I think, is a higher power than me. If I don't believe in a higher power, then it's essentially saying I'm the highest power. And I don't think that. I think... A group of people has more power than just me. Whatever higher power I can connect with that makes me feel good, like nature makes me feel good. The government might be a higher power, but that might not make me feel good. <laughs> I don't want to necessarily believe in the government, but I can believe in nature and connect with nature. And so that's the main thing at any stage of life, building connection. Loneliness isn't just a problem for the elderly, it's also a problem increasingly for every previous or every younger generation working back from the elderly. So kids are the most lonely in America today, Generation Z. 
And that's because unlike the elderly, they've never had a chance to get any depth of connection. Likes and follows and comments cannot substitute for people showing up at your house when you need them or for hugs and uh, appropriate physical touch and affection. And some kids never get that. I've had kids tell me, I have so many virtual friends, but nobody really knows me and nobody actually shows up in my life or has my back. So one kid said, I'd rather have two half dollars than a hundred pennies. But wherever we're at in life, we have to try to build connection. We have to help each other build connection. We have to reach out to each other and we have to find solutions to the problem of loneliness because so much addiction has a high rate of co-occurring disorders. So there's a lot of depression and anxiety associated with addiction. There's pain problems. There's a very strong link between addiction and trauma. And so as spiritual people, if we thought whoever's suffering, it's due to their karma. They did something bad in the, earlier in their life or in a previous life or something like that. If, well, if karma is a real thing, and that's their bad karma. And then somebody thought that that was an opportunity to say, let karma play out. I would say, then that's bad karma. Because the only way you can get good karma is by helping people with bad karma. <laughs> and if you fail at that opportunity, then you've just essentially created more bad karma for yourself. <laughs> we'll do a whole nother one on karma. <laughs> All right, thank you. Well, there's, I wish I could give you an easy answer, but I can say that being here and being around love and support, and that's what this community is all about that you've built. It's about a place where we belong to each other. And you're not alone, that's the main thing. It's to, to be in environments where you realize that you're not alone. And yes, it's, it's extremely painful. And I think one of the hardest things for a parent going through something like this is you're trying to make decisions and not be the bad person, right? And all this. And I, I try to just keep reminding parents who love the people in their life and are suffering so much, seeing them suffering, that whatever decisions you make, when they're based out of love, they're the right decision. You know, no matter how that decision lands for the people in your life. But it's important to ask ourselves, how can I stay loving in all of this? Because if we use a different example, different kind of disease that people can just accept more easily, like Alzheimer's, super painful, to see your loved one totally change before your eyes, the person you've known your whole life, your father or your spouse, and then to see them become mean and forget your name. Well, it, we understand enough about Alzheimer's to know that there's no point in saying, you're, you're such a jerk and I can't have anything to do with you anymore. We understand on some level that this is a disease playing out and we don't take it as personally. We can just hold his hand and say, that's okay if he doesn't remember me. I'm still going to be here for him. And sometimes that's all we can do is to just let the people in our life know, whether you get better or whether you don't get better, I love you. And that's the same with, with any other health condition. And so what, what you have to keep doing is being in environments like this. And what the people in recovery have to do, whether they realize it or not, is they have to stop relying on willpower, those who would like to change. It is a disease of willpower. When I hear a patient tell me, I don't even want to use again, so I know I'm going to 
do well. And I, well, you may not want to use right now because you're in the court system and you had a DUI and your world's crashing down. And so you know that you can't do that right now. But what happens when all that blows over? When you're finally through all the court process stuff and you got something expunged from your record, now what, you know? And just because I feel like staying sober now doesn't mean I will in the future. My question for people in recovery is, who, who are making these steps is, where will you be when you get bad news? Because if you're just arm's length away from a drink or from a drug, you're more likely to relapse. If you're sitting in an AA meeting or in a spiritual community like this, it's harder. Recovery isn't about increasing one's willpower. It's actually about building a life where it's harder to use. And not only does the person with addiction have to do that if, they, if there's hope for getting better, but the family has to do that as well because they're going through their own uh, suffering. They're going through their own condition. And it, it definitely increases rates of depression and, and all kinds of other emotional distress. So we're here for you. We love you. Thank you for your courage to be here and to share that with us. It's a good question. We see people struggling in the community and we don't always know what the most compassionate way is to help them. And again, there's no easy answer here because everybody's different. Everybody's personality is different. Everybody learns differently. Everybody has a different rock bottom. Some people's rock bottom, like my friend, was when he got arrested as an 18-year-old kid. That was it. I don't want to go any lower than that. Very easy for him to turn, turn away from that because it was early on and that, that was his primacy effect. Uh, but I think for, for the people we care about, you plant seeds. I know many people in recovery who are told many times by their friends, you know, if you need me, if you need help getting into a program, I'm here for you, I can drive you. And none of that worked until that person hit their rock bottom. But for many people in recovery, I hear them say, I know my friend was trying to show me this. I know my brother or sister was, was helping me to see this and I just couldn't see it at the time. So another part of this is just understanding that we're planting seeds, we're letting people know, if you get to that rock bottom, I'm here for you. you know? And to try to help people gently see that you know, there, there is help and there's hope and you can turn this around.